Welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show from Austin, Texas. I'm Christopher Schmidt. On today's show, we talk with Whitney Quisenberry. Whitney is a co-director of Civic Design and is an expert in user research, user experience, and usability with a passion for clear communication. She's the author of three books, A Web for Everyone, Storytelling and User Experience, and Global UX. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. Access U Summit is a virtual conference on digital accessibility techniques and policies that's taking place online on May 18th. Early bird tickets are now on sale at accessusummit.com. That's access, the letter U, summit, all one word, dot com. Make plans for CSS DevConf 2017. Join Chris Coyer, Wes Boss, me, Markham, Harry Roberts, Sarah Dresner, and many, many more in the New Orleans this October. Early bird tickets are now on sale at cssdevconf.com. UX Design Newsletter is a weekly list of articles, tutorials, and inspiration handpicked by yours truly. Sign up at uxdesignnewsletter.com and have the best links of the week sent to your email. Find show notes and links discussed at today's show at nonbreakingspace.tv. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Telject, T-E-L-E-J-C-T. And as always, if you like the show, please let others know. Now, on with the show. But yeah, that's one of the things I like. But thank you so much for taking time out uh, of your day because you didn't know what you were talking about today. I appreciate that even more. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, but like, uh, can you tell us uh, about yourself and and what you're working on these days? Sure. I mean, these days I'm pretty much entirely civic design, so it's all elections all the time. Oh, wow, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, we start. Dana Chisnell and I started this Center for Civic Design three years ago, uh, and thought that's nice we'll do this for a while but it, it, the work keeps coming and there's plenty to do in making elections usable for people and making helping election officials run them well mm-hmm. and i still do a bunch of accessibility work um uh, because that's part of elections so it fits into that and i'm also doing a project uh working with greg Vanderheiden, so that's fun and um you know work for everyone still is out there and so people still ask me to come talk or do conference presentations or teach and that's always nice yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a great speaker, so I think people who are who are listening, who are charges conferences or want to do one, I think you're uh, they should definitely call you up and get you speak because you you always do a great job uh, for uh, for our online events. So it's very awesome. Uh, what is civic design? What is that? What is the realm of that? Can you like? Sure. So the realm of civic design is um, how can we make how can we treat democracy as a design problem? That is, instead of seeing it as a bunch of policies and laws, which is an important aspect of of democracy, but think about what we know about service design and accessible design and interaction design and all of those things, and how can we bring those to bear to make uh, democracy function better? Now we 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 cast it very broadly because we. We think that it's not just elections. I mean, you know, that ballot design where we started is really the tip of an iceberg that, you know, is a whole way that we run government and how counties run elections and what election administration looks like. And that vol- that army of volunteers or semi-volunteers who actually run elections, poll workers. Right? I mean, it's, it's actually, if for anybody who's listening, if you want to do something to help elections, volunteer to be a poll worker. It's actually an awesome good time. And it's one of the places where across the nation, millions of everyday citizens do the business of democracy whenever an election happens. So that's, um, but we give them really crummy tools to work with. We give them forms that look like they were, you know, that were sort of designed on a typewriter 
it would be really nice if the tools we had. I mean, this we we would love to be working on things like how we write legislation. How how do we write laws so that people understand what they're voting for? Uh, if you're in California and have had dozens of measures to vote on, how do you know what they really mean? And how can we present them in a way that makes sense? And then how can we make your voter guide useful? And how can we make your ballot easy to fill out? And how can we make it easy to count? Um, right, so that when it gets counted, it gets counted accurately. Um, but all of those things play into questions about local government versus centralized state government. What should we be doing digitally and what should we do be doing by a person? And elections are really interesting because it's one of those places where um, uh, accessibility is really critical because uh, it all has to come together on those, you know, 12 hours of election day or 14 hours of election day. And if someone can't get to the polls, do we have alternatives for them? If they can get to the polls, do we do we meet them with a ballot that they can actually fill out and, and mark by their, uh, independently and privately? Uh, do, can we do that in a way that doesn't mean that they violate secrecy of the ballot? You know, all of those. So all those questions, the, the sort of underpinning of, of how we run our country show up on election day and all the materials that, that coalesce there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been actually been a poll worker a few times and uh, I love it. I actually loved it in Florida more than I liked it. I've also been in, in Ohio uh, mm -hmm. too. I, I enjoyed Florida's uh, <laughs> poll working a lot more because I felt like they were more with it in terms of uh, accessibility and flow. And um, it was actually, uh, uh, it, I wasn't a poll worker during the, uh, the 2000 you know, Gore versus Bush mm -hmm. type of thing mm -hmm. that the floating Chad or the hanging Chad uh, that you have you, but, uh, but I do want to talk about that, but, uh, but yeah, but I do see like, there's a difference because I felt like the, the person in charge of the ballots for the County that I worked in, in Florida, he was, you know, very meticulous about making sure there was a process and that was, it was followed and that uh, things were legible. And so I had documentation, for mm -hmm. everything that I did. And since I was the youngest person there, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was in charge of the modem, you know, ballot, right. uh, the electric ground ballot and stuff like that too, which is mm -hmm. totally ageist, but whatever. But, uh, and then, um, but yeah, but I had to go like connect a modem. I had to go find a telephone port somewhere and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. connect it. And so I had, you know, detailed instructions for every step of the way. And I was like, wow, this is great. This is good. And then I went to Ohio and uh, turned me off. <laughs> Well, yeah. a ball worker because well, I, it, it was I, I, want, I want to sort of defend um, election officials everywhere, which is that it's really county by county, not state by state. Yes. So, uh, you know, there are great there are many, many great county election officials mm -hmm. who do who set up things wonderfully. And then there are probably some who don't. There, there are state laws that are make that easier and harder. Okay. So there's there's a lot of variation. I think that's one of the, the things that surprised me, I think. Um, I certainly had the impression that there was one big national election system, but it's not true. It is, in fact, very local. And, the, you know, there's some bad things about that. But one of the good things about that is that small changes can make a big a big impact for everyone in a county right away. Yeah. Um, so, so what type of uh, work do you do, like, on for to help people with with polls? Like, what type of projects or, you know, issues that do you tackle with that? Well, we've been, we've been lucky enough to be able to mix some... Uh, a lot of uh, kind of open-ended research or not quite so open-ended, applied research with um, what to do with it. So we've spent about three years working in California so far where they have required voter guides, right? The state and the county send out paper, you know, piles of paper. In San Francisco, it was 150 pages or so last election. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of it's a lot of print and it's a lot of money. And if we're going to do it, wouldn't it be nice if it was actually good, right? If it was actually helpful, so we were charged with asking the question, what makes a good voter guide? 
Uh, and we were paired up with the League of Women Voters of California, which is an awesome organization. In fact, nationally, it's an awesome organization. And the head of the group we were working with said, look, if we make it 10 or 15 percent better for people who already vote to vote, we will have failed. Right. The goal here is to think about why people don't vote and what information they need to want to vote and what how do we connect them to this process? So we spent our time in community gyms and on the steps of libraries and uh, going to LGBT centers and standing on street corners trying to look for people. At one point, I went bounding up to a group of young men outside a library and said our opening line, which is, hi, are you registered to vote? And they went, uh-uh, like, got you. And I went, great, you're exactly who we want to talk to. And they're like, oh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> Been caught. But we ended up having this fascinating session with them, uh, with two of the guys being our, our main participants. But we, you know, they were all young. They were in the local university. But they'd had very different trajectories in their lives. And, you know, they sort of knew you kind of ought to vote, but they weren't really connected to it. And we got to look through some materials and think about why. And it was when we started that research, we had a book that we'd put together with good pages from voter guides all over the county. There's no point in testing bad stuff, right? We, I mean, for all over the state. So we picked examples of covers and tables of contents and explanations of, of you know, how to vote. And we got people to go through them and just pick the ones that they liked enough that they'd want it in their voter guide and then tell us why, talk about it. And it was fascinating. At the end of the day, we learned things like, um, the five top pages were very different visually. In fact, I could put them up on the screen, walk half a room away, and I could tell you which was the list of candidates and which was the general instructions and which was the measure. So there was something about the visual presentation tying together with the, the content in plain language um, that just simple things like a table of contents um, help people frame, a, get a mental model of what was in this book. Um, uh, answering the questions that they actually had. So we that turned into a series of best practices uh, that got published and has been pretty widely circulated. And then we spent a final year working with three counties. We worked with Orange County, so big, huge, and populated, and a great staff. Santa Cruz, kind of middle-sized county. Shasta, small, small county. And help them actually transform their voter guides as much as they could following the best practices. Wow. And actually then also did training for Oh, about, about half of the 58 counties in California. So we've had a pretty big impact with that one. So we sort of go from a question like, why isn't this working right, to trying to figure out the answers, to trying then to see if our answers actually make sense in context. Uh, do, was there a quantifiable result in terms of voting, in terms of before and after? Did you have the chance to do that yet, like in terms of seeing the impact? Oh, it kind of turned out this is actually very, very hard to measure, okay. right? So, I mean, we could say, sure, lots more people voted, but it was, a pres it, was a very, it was a hot presidential election, and it was the first time in many years that California's primary had, had counted. So, um, no, we really we, – it's very hard to draw that line. But we can draw lines like in California's primary, there was an open seat for senator, and they have a top two primary where it's nonpartisan top two, top two go on to November. And so a lot of people signed up because it's an open seat, and they had 34 candidates. Well – on many of the ballots around the state, that meant that they couldn't fit them into a single column. Now, we know this is bad. We know that one of the easiest ways to get someone to overvote, that is to vote more times than they're allowed and therefore waste their ballot, is to divide the candidates into two columns because they think, oh, I voted here and now I keep voting there. And a bunch of the registrars came to us and said, we're really worried about this. What can we do? And we said, let's lay, lay it out a bit, as best you can and let's do some usability testing. So we did some in Santa Cruz, but I know several other counties went out and did their own testing following our model and came back and said, 
we're seeing a third of our voters make mistakes. Um, and they kept working at it. And in, in a, some of the counties, I mean, it, depending on their voting system, but they actually discovered uh, and more power to the, the person who did the layout and figured this out for us, uh, that if they moved it to the back of the ballot, they could actually get it to fit in one column. So, uh, you know, can we measure that impact? Probably not. But we can tell you that when we tested it, people didn't make the overvotes were bad, but they weren't 33 percent that we were seeing. Wow. Uh, so um, we think we often are most effective in in stopping bad things from happening uh, and amplifying the good things that are happening. But it's really hard to say the voter guide was nicer. So more people came out to vote. Yeah. Um, I, I wish we could draw a nice, clean, bright line. But <laughs> I guess I guess what else do you, do you, do you work with? Because you, you talk about uh, ballot design, which you talk about uh, training for poll workers. Like, like what type of training do you do? Would you would you? Uh, well, well, we'd actually be doing training for the election officials. So teaching. I mean, there's, you know, no matter how many of us are, there are never enough to go around. So what you really have to do is teach the people who make the things how to do it. We're actually teaching a university course. It's the first in the nation wow. course on election design. It's part of a certificate, a graduate certificate in election administration. Wow. So it's it's part of uh, upping the game of the profession. And uh, we've had some great people. So we're beginning to teach general design principles. Um, we have our field guides for for um, guides for ensuring user intent that are basically all of the guidelines we have boiled down to the simplest possible set of instructions um, and examples of of what good and bad design look like. Because if you've never, you know, if you've never been to design school, if you've never been to design, how do you know what makes that good? Especially when you're trying to fit it on a one piece of papers because that keeps your mailing costs down or uh, the law is very confusing and and requires you to have a lot of complicated words, you know, not well-written paragraphs. How do you then turn that into something that's um, not just uh, an experience where people, you know, are effective at working, but maybe where they don't fear interacting with government? If they if we can change the expectation from this is going to be painful to no, it's going to be okay. Um, you know, that's that, that to me is the real goal. The other thing that we're working on, I'm really excited about, we've been doing some pro bono work with the Brennan Center and a couple of the states. Uh, Brennan Center for Justice is a, a civil rights um, a group, a law center in New York that covers a wide range of things, but has a democracy program. And uh, states are moving to um, certainly to online voter registration, which is great because it opens up access, but also to something we call automatic voter registration that says, look, when you go to the DMV and you get you know, motor vehicles and you get your driver's license updated, why don't we update your voter registration at the same time? Right? Why do we have to have two trips to a governor's office to do the same work? Uh, and that's really exciting because that begins to start to say, it's not just that we citizens are supposed to fit into the little boxes that existed, not because anyone thought they were a great idea, but because in the old days when everything was paper, you went to the county clerk's office to do this and the motor vehicles to do that. And, you know, it was a big pile of paper. Well, they aren't anymore. It's all databases now. It's all the stuff we know about, right? And so why can't we make use of all of those things that we know and all of those electronic tools in the place where it makes sense, which is helping citizens engage with government better? Right. Yeah, I mean, um, my concern with there was a story this week uh, that I read was that uh, it was a like government handling databases, right? The, uh, were it was it was an issue. The, the story was more like you know a feature article, but it kind of uh, under kind of put the scare of me because like when I went to grad school, it was one of my areas of research was about uh, uh, government and databases and uh, kind of controlling lives. 
uh, with their databases and getting it wrong. And not that it's at, at fault, but is it the fact that uh, the information they put in there might be wrong or they might be read wrong and there's no impetus for them to change it. And so the, and in this story, it was um, uh, there was two women had the same names, same birthday, very different demographics in terms of their background, but they lived in the same city. And, you know, when, and one of them, uh, you know, got into trouble with the law a lot uh, and got a lot of traffic tickets and everything like that. But the police would never go past name or birthday when they pulled up their information. And if they actually pulled up address or something like that, they would actually find out like this is a different person. And then even in the court of law, she's the same person as this, you know, as this other person. And so that's kind of where that, that's a kind of a trouble. So I could see where. Yeah, well, we think about that a lot in elections, right? Because you yeah. want to make sure that when someone shows up to pass their ballot, that they are that they that we know, you know, that they're that they're registered correctly. Because right. um, so, yeah, there's been a lot of work. So, for instance, even automatic voter registration has an opt out where you get to look at it and say, yes, this is me. Mm-hmm. This is done correctly. And, you know, there are people who should not register that way. Uh, if you're someone who's being protected, for instance, in a safe at home, uh, anti, you know, anti abuse program or uh you're a public you're a public person you shouldn't you know your address isn't public record so i think part of it is we're beginning to learn how to put the data under the control of the citizens themselves Hmm. not just the the big database um you know how Hmm. do you make sure that someone isn't disenfranchised and i think that the story you just told is a crazy one because that probably goes on in every aspect of their lives but we think of the the worst thing that could possibly happen is that someone who really is a voter, really is registered, really is ready to vote, shows up and somehow isn't able to vote. Right. Because there's no second chances. Yeah. Well, I can't. In fact, uh, that's a big thing also because there's a uh, – I forgot what the name, name of it is, but there's actually a uh, – you could – like so if someone shows up expecting to vote, but it's also not registered to vote. That they, and uh, so depending on the state, depending on the county, because it's a county issue. Uh, state issue. Yeah, state issue. Like, so if uh, – I forgot what the name of it. It's like another – so you actually cast a ballot. It's sealed. It's put into another – Oh, provisional ballot. Provisional ballot. So there's two things. One is – so your name is on the rolls. Yeah. And, but you are really sure you should be allowed to vote. Um, it's called provisional voting. And what happens is they seal your ballot up and then they research it. So maybe you didn't come in and sign – you know, maybe you didn't show ID or something, or you didn't finish your form correctly, or maybe you're just in the wrong county. You're actually in the wrong polling place, uh, and they can actually transfer most of your ballot there. But the other solution is election day registration, right? Minnesota allows you to, and several other states allow you to actually register um, at the polling place. Yeah. Um, uh, you have to have proper ID. You have to have someone to vouch for you, but. Uh, and then they double, you know, they do go through the same check of regular, they hold your ballot and your same thing that happens as would go through normal voter registration. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, we are a highly mobile society. I think we're going to have to change our conception of how the system works from the kind of thing where you bought a house at 23 and stayed there until you died. That's just not our society. How do we, how do we make our tools keep up with us? Right. Yeah. And that's definitely, definitely thing. I think there's a growing pains I see as a culture. In terms of uh, you know dealing with like a, the digital age and um, you know which you know we you know if you were on the web early in the 90s like I was like we're finally kind of seeing that throws but then you see now after 20 plus years of the web and mobile life we're seeing like the government coming these institutions like the DMV paper based institutions trying to play catch up you know with it and uh, so I feel like that's but yeah but going back to uh, voting and um, 
talking about that, like as a poll worker, like the hardest thing for me was a young, uh, engaged, you know, individual who is, uh, you know, age to vote, you know, ready and just showed up and not re- realizing that they had to register to vote. Right. And that's like the hardest thing. Cause like, I want you to vote. I'm <laughs> glad to see young people voting, you know, period, right. you know, actually going to, cause like, you know, when, when I was young, like, you know, when I was of age, you know, you could actually vote on campus, but here, you know, I would volunteer off campus or whatever mm-hmm. at the time. But like when someone actually went off campus, the busy day, you know, you know, trying to and just show up and not work. And that's, that's a tough, tough thing. Yeah, it is really hard. Yeah. I mean, the other, so the other part of our work has been thinking about that voter journey, right? What is, what are the, what are all the, thinking of it as a journey map and what are all the things that touches that voter as they go? And, and one of the things that we've learned is that when you think about it and you lay it out in a, you do the business analysis part and you lay out the, you know, it starts with this process, which is you decide you want to vote and you get registered and you learn about elections and you learn when the election is and you show up and you vote and then you learn the results and it's all nice and orderly. And that's not at all how it happens, is that people often are triggered to vote, to think about an election after that voter registration deadline. It's why provisional voting and why election day registration is so important and why automatic voter registration is so important. Back when I was doing an early piece of research, I was interviewing young voters in Maryland. I didn't know much about Maryland, but it was a convenient place for me to do this work. And uh, one of them said, I said, you know, I was expecting to hear all these stories about how hard it was to get registered and they didn't get registered in time. I was expecting to hear stories like you just told. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I didn't. And one of the guys said, oh, it was so great. I mean, I turned 18 and a postcard came in the mail saying where I should go vote. They just knew I was ready. Yeah. And I thought, I know this is not how it works. So what's going on? And I <laughs> dug a little bit and discovered that at the motor vehicles, when you get your learner's permit, mm-hmm. they were pre-registering you. And then they were holding your registration until you were 18, until you would be 18 at the next election and then sending you something saying, great, your election. California just moved that to 16. A lot of states are doing it. And it means that we catch people at that first huge adult engagement, right, before they've even left high school. They get, they, you get your driver's permit. Now, it's not everybody. It doesn't cover inner cities, but it certainly covers a huge swatch of the population. Right. And now we can get them into, into the voting habit on their very first eligible election. Right. Yeah, it was great. And then also, like, you know, uh, for, you know, I also feel like, you know, I just witnessed it, you know, personally, just with uh, millennials, or the, I don't want to say millennials, I'm not going to throw them the, I'm not throwing them the bus, but, but I just say, like, the newer age, you know, the car culture isn't as big growing up. And so they're not, they don't really need to go DMV. And so the online registration is also just right. more and more important. Imagine if that's one of the things you did before you graduated from high school. Or before you left high school, that we that we, made. or maybe imagine you start college or you start your first job or you go into the military, and one of the first questions they they do is say, if you're not registered, let's get you registered. So why don't we have more? Why don't we integrate it more into our lives? I mean, when you move, you go to the mail the post office and you get that big pile of postcards that you're supposed to mail out to everybody you know to tell them your new address. Why isn't one of those postcards uh, tell your old election official that you're leaving and tell your new election office that you're coming? Right. Or if you ever get a passport, you know, you can just register for a passport and actually say, hey, did you vote? That's right. And I think and I think we're starting to see that more and more that if we don't invite people, I mean, that um, Katie Peters from Democracy Works wrote a great article that said one of the you know, she's one of the greatest ways to get people to come vote is to actually invite them. (laughs) Right. Say we want to we want to hear you. Come on. You know, Um, so. Uh, instead of thinking of it as a duty, let's think of it as as a privilege. Let's think of it as something that's a joy to do. Yeah. Uh, well, I always thought that. So I don't know. That's, uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't think other people. Might. I'm not. I'm not, not going to reject myself on everyone else. But uh, 
but yeah so poll workers is great yeah so i definitely if anyone's listening and i definitely want to like urge them to to volunteer to be a poll worker because it's it's uh it's great it's a commitment but it's also just just wonderful because you see people in your community that um that you know probably would never see before too so just um and it's it's great because you're just you know it's democracy in action like you said earlier absolutely yeah it's pretty uh so i guess you do um you gotta talk about ballot design um is there any crazy ballot designs from the last election or like past elections cycles that you talk about there's always sort of crazy things that happen. I mean, one of the trends that's really interesting that's challenging ballot design is having a large number of people um, on a, on the ballot. So, uh, I think that's a uh, it's a it's a, a result of a really good trend, which is that we're really working to open up access to run for election. Right. So we're starting to see 10, 15, 20 people when there's especially when there's an open seat or when there's been a controversy. Um, people stepping up and saying, not only do I want to vote, not only maybe I'll volunteer for a poll worker, but maybe I'll get on my town council or I'll, I'll run as alderman or I'll, you know, have one of those, uh, you know, part-time jobs of actually running my town. And maybe some of those grow up and they start to run their county and then they start to run for state Congress and, or, you know, congressional representative or for the state assembly. And we start, uh, getting more people involved in actually being elected officials. Uh, that would be great. Or maybe taking a job in in city or state government. I think cities are where a lot of the really exciting innovations are happening. We're seeing um, design innovation groups in lots of cities who are rethinking government processes and how the programs are working. And uh, they're starting to do things uh, like, uh, well, Dean Logan, who's the county clerk in Los Angeles uh, two years ago, has, um, has a great IT group. And in his uh, annual report, he said that he had taken the time it took to register a business from, uh, was it three weeks to three days? It was something like that. Just by using IT better, by thinking about the process, by thinking about where are the places where there's real pain points in, in interacting with government. And let's kind of, wouldn't it be cool to be working on that kind of project? You know, something that helps people get food stamps better. Uh, Code for America does those year-long internships where are um not internships, fellowships, where you get to work with a city. Um, but those cities are now responding by not waiting for Code for America, but setting up their own design innovation groups. They're good at accessibility. They're good at design. They're good at modern coding techniques. And they're and they're doing some of the most um, innovative work out there. So it's like sort of like a modernization of, of America, almost, in a way. Yeah. 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 I think so, too. Cool. Uh, yeah, so um, I do want to go back to another point. Is it, talked about uh, making sure uh voting is accessible on the day of like did you do any research into making sure people are accessible like you know, one of the things in um that you know from my experience as a poll worker is that uh if someone is uh, handicapped and you actually can't get out of the car uh mm-hmm. the actual like uh, the head of the poll, poll office at the time or uh, okay. our place would actually get out with a ballot and walk the ballot to them and make sure things like above board and everything like that so is there anything like like that type of issues yeah, I mean, it, we don't do much with with physical accessibility, and that but that is an area where the Department of Justice pays attention. Okay. But what we think about is what are the election procedures. So curbside voting is one of them. Okay. Um, uh, uh, there was a county in Northern California that did um, uh, a, a truck, you know, a, a day where everybody would deck out their trucks and came, drove downtown in a parade and dropped off their ballots, which I think is kind of cool because it says, you know, maybe lots of people don't want to get out of their car. 
But the other thing is if we say the law says you have to have one accessible machine per polling place um, so you can vote accessibly. And that's nice. But you know what happens when you say there's just one and it's for those people is it sits in the corner and no one shows up and uses it, even though uh, it does a lot of things. It, it will read things out loud to you. So if you don't read very well, it's useful. It lets you make the text bigger. It lets you do all those things for accessibility that we know help everyone. So why don't we say all of the systems should be accessible or all of the ways to vote should be accessible and therefore everybody, lots of people will benefit from it in ways that we maybe haven't even thought about. Uh, and that's kind of the one. Well, think about voting by absentee ballot or vote by mail, right? East or West. It sounds great. You know, your ballot arrives in the mail. Uh, you mark it. You fill out the envelope. You put it back in the mail. It's wonderful. What if you live downtown where there's, you know, putting stuff in the mailbox isn't exactly the safest thing to do with your with your ballot because, you know, garbage goes in them. Or what if you can't um, see that ballot to mark it? What if, you know, how do you how do you mark that ballot if you have a disability? So what's what's being developed are things that are called sort of remote ballot markers. So you have a program that you can download to your computer mm -hmm. that lets you uh, mark the mark your choices, print out the ballot um, and mail that back. Now, it's not fully hands-free, but it's it's a lot better. Oregon's been doing this for seven years, so it's not brand new. Uh, a couple of other states have started doing it. Because I think if we're going to have a way to vote, that way to vote ought to be open to everybody. Are you talking about the uh, the design course? Is that, is that open to everyone for... Or is that generally? It actually is open to anyone. Uh, if you're, you can, you can actually, you can, if you're registered for the whole program, of course you can get in, but you don't have to. You can do it as continuing ed and just take the first course. We would love to have a mix of election officials who know about elections, who are learning design, and young designers or old designers, for that matter, who are who know about design and are learning elections, right? And wouldn't that be great? We've, we, it's a remote course, so you can take it from anywhere. Okay. We, we've structured it so that the there's a lot of sort of class interaction. I mean, it's a it's a it's a scheduled week by week course, and uh, there's a lot of people, you know, questions people are are meant to discuss as a group. So it'd be really great to have more viewpoints in there. Um, it's going to be offered in the spring semester every year. So it's we're finishing. We're just coming to the end of oh. the 2007 presentation. It'll show up again in 2018. Oh man, I missed it out. Yeah, what you're saying. Uh, January January 2018 is so much sooner than you think. <laughs> we we have I can't remember the number of days, but Dana keeps a calendar that's how many days till the November 18 election. It's like 500 and something at this point. Okay. And I and my count is to when is the primaries because all the material that you develop for the November election, poll worker training, poll worker materials, new voter guide formats, those all get done in January, February, March. And if, if it's not done by then, it doesn't happen in November. Right. Okay. Uh, where, where can people find this course? It's at the Humphrey Center. Um, uh, so it's a Humphrey, sorry, that's at the University of Maryland Humphrey Center for Public Policy. But if you also go to our website, uh, that is civicdesign.org, and just search for election design course, you will find it in the news article. Where, where can people find out uh, more about it? I guess civicdesign.org is more, more about your work that you do? Civicdesign.org is our is our communication central. We have a newsletter you can sign up for um, that that is sort of tips about elections. We also have a medium um, channel that's civic designing uh, that that is things aimed. The the newsletter is really aimed more at election administrators, but it's interesting stuff. It's good stories, and the civic designing is really aimed at people who are not in elections. But all of our projects are out there, um, so we're, we're pretty transparent about our work. Okay, awesome. Well, th this is great. I, I love I love that you're doing this, and I I'm gonna find out more about it and see if I can 
be on that next course because I, I, I love elections and I love design. So that's great. There you go. You'd be perfect. Well, next thing you know, you'll be applying for a job at Travis County. <laughs> Awesome. Who, who, by the way, has one of the most, um, one of the really innovative elect- county clerks and election directors in the country, right in your county. Why is that? And how, how so? Oh, Dana DeBevoir is amazing. She, about oh, gosh, almost 10 years ago now, had this idea of, of, of how to make a electronic voting system that would actually be secure. And she's been working with uh, researchers from around the country, from Microsoft Cryptography and Rice University and a bunch of other places. And it's called StarVote. Uh, and they're proceeding to try to actually build their own voting system and have it be one that does some of the things that systems don't now. Um, they're, they're pretty close to having an RFP out, which is very interesting. LA is doing the same thing. So we're starting to see that innovation get into the county offices as well. Well, that's great. Yeah, because we have a just, you know, Austin being one of the startup capitals and in, in like one of the, we have just a ton of startups here in town. So there's just plenty of talent for that to happen. So mm-hmm. for them to do that. But yeah, I, I would love to see what Starvote is because, but uh, I just don't understand. I, I understand it, but there's some, uh, maybe you can get some uh, thoughts on this, but I always thought like we should have uh, open source or voting systems. Like there's always this big brouhaha over uh, my ballot, my electronic ballot uh, got hacked, you know, well, you know, mm-hmm. and there's always some concern about that. Um, I always thought like, well, maybe we should just open source it and have it, have the system uh, be checked out by, by a whole bunch of programmers and some of that on the fly. Is, is that something feasible or? Yeah, I think that's part of the part of the formula, but um, which is to have some level of open source to it. Hmm. Um, but uh, I think there's also some issues. I mean, and there's no question that we need um, systems that are secure and that have a have a paper paper record. I mean, you don't have to believe in hacking to think that a paper record's a good idea. All you have to believe in is what happens if you run over your computer, right? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you know, so things happen to bits and bytes. And so having something nice and tangible uh, as a as a backup to be the official record is an important thing. Right. Um, I think that the importance of open source is being able to bring in a wider range of people interested in 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 um, sort of the code behind elections. Um, I suspect that it wouldn't be the kind of open source project where anybody could just check in, you know, check in a new mm-hmm. a new feature. Because uh, for one thing, one of the things you want in an election system is stability, right? You don't want any surprises on on election day about how it might work. But uh, I think all of the ideas about opening up how we think about technology um, are in play and should be in play. Um, uh, and we're and we're it's going to take a while. It's a slow moving culture. Remember, they the, while there's elections all the time, they work on a kind of four year cycle because they work around the presidential cycle. And you've got that. You've got the off year elections. You've got your state elections and your county elections and your hyper local elections. But you don't want to make big changes right before a, a presidential election when you have the most turnout. So they tend to like start doing experimentation now, building towards 2020, building towards 2018. So it moves slowly. So it's still iterative. It's just iterative on a on a six month to two year basis rather than a than a three week basis. Yeah, I mean, like people complain about the uh, speed, which is you know the slowness of uh, I think our our system, but I think that is also the the advantage of it too. Is just that uh, things don't get changed at a fast pace, where you know citizens. We'll have to like they don't need to be uh, watch everything that happens in government because it's representative government and so, but yeah, and and we want, we want society to move along in a fairly stable way. The question is, how do you make sure that when you make changes, you get input from everybody that you don't just ask you know five nice middle class people you know, or 
that you really do reach out to all the communities, all the language communities, all the minority communities, all the people who have different relationships to government and make sure that all of that input is coming in. It's all the stuff we know about user-centered design, right? Making sure that users are in fact heard. Right. Yeah. And then it's, I think the, the, the big question is, you know, maybe the, the I see is just, uh, maintaining or growing the faith in the system. And so uh, when I talk about open source, you know, like you'd still like, you know, you can say like, even with software development, you know, they, they like, they lock in a, a feature, like even FedEx, like, you know, when, before Christmas rush happens, they, they lock their software down so no one can make, make a, like an update to the <laughs> software right before, like, you know, the Christmas uh, rush packages. So, but I can see that well also with, with the voting machines is the systems like, you know, an open source system, like, okay, well, no, no more patches after this, you know, X, Y, Z, but, uh, but also, you know, and also paper still has an issue too, because, you know, you'll see every story, like, you know, there'll, there'll be some county, where someone had like forgot to have ballot a bag of ballots in their trunk of their car, you know, it just it happens, you know, people. Right. But that's but th- see that's where that's where the electronic system can come in, right? Because if you know how many ballot if you know how many people voted, right. and you know how many ballots you got, and there's a thousand missing, then you've got a cross check. Right, exactly. I think, so it's a, I mean I think it's about a kind of transparency. Uh, when Colorado last year switched to their their new bottle where everybody gets a ballot by mail. Um, but they can also go to a voting center to vote. A couple of the counties started working on helping their citizens understand what this new system looked like behind the scenes. And they started doing tours of their ballot processing centers and putting up posters. And people left saying, wow, first of all, I have no idea how complicated it was or how and how thoroughly you check that every ballot that comes in is handled properly. It's counted or not counting as, as, as it ought to be. Um, uh, it's hard to trust something you don't know how it works inside, and that might be code, but it might be procedure. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think it, you know. So being being a poll worker or just taking the time to learn how it works makes a big difference. And then I think the other side of that is it having being incumbent on us to make sure that the way it works isn't so complicated no one can understand it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. I totally agree. Well, this has been awesome. I do want to give one shout out, just anyone who cares, uh, from Florida, from Leon County, but the uh, Ion Sancho was oh. was was the uh, person that did uh, the Florida vote. Ion is amazing. He's just retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, just retired this year after the election. Uh, he was uh, quite a thought leader in the in the in the in the world of elections. Yeah, it's so like in, when I when I think of. Uh, my poll worker experience, like he was the gold standard. I didn't know how good I had it until I moved to other, until I moved around. But, uh, but yeah. yeah, he's like when the whole uh, Bush versus Gore thing, his was, his county was the only one that didn't change. And isn't it cool that, that the election director or county clerk in a small county in, a, in one state could actually make such a difference to their citizens' lives? But thank you so much for doing the work you're doing, and this is awesome. And so how can people uh, follow up? You say you have a newsletter at civics.org, the civicdesign.org. Go to civicdesign.org, go to About. There's a place to sign up for the newsletter. We also have a list of um, – we often get people who say, look, I'd love to be able to do something once in a while. Uh, and we also believe that that this work is local. So one of the things when we get a chance to work in a local jurisdiction, we like to introduce them to people in their county or in their town who uh, are interested. Uh, so we have a, what we call the Civic Designer Regulars. Uh, sign up and – Put your name on the list, and when when work comes around, it, we don't know when it we don't know when it happens. It's not a very well, you know. Often things come up quickly and need to happen quickly, and so if we have a big list of people, we can reach out, and the person that happens to be free and available uh, gets to do a little bit of a little bit of work for the county, and maybe that leads to something more and something more, and we've started something new. Okay. Awesome, sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you. 